Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we're not quite done looking back on the year 2023 yet. So we're going to try something different this year. We're going to be doing our our favorite first time watches of 2023. So this will be different from last week where we were looking at actual 2023 releases. This week, we're cutting those out and we're just talking about the movies that we watched for the first time, but weren't new to this year. Yeah. Yeah. Which has become something like I used to do it in like just for my own, I don't know, purposes in prior years. And then since having the YouTube channel the last three years, I've made a tradition to do a list counting down the top 10 best first time watches. And it's kind of silly because obviously the only person who has the frame of reference for what you've seen in the year is you. It's not really like it's it, it doesn't have the sort of use value in the same way that a list of the year's movies does. But a, I think it's fun. Uh, it's just as a fun sort of form of self-reflection on the movies you watched and what you gained from them. Uh, but also, um, unlike the sort of modern contemporary new releases where there's an incentive to talk about them because they're new, because they're still sort of finding their audience and finding fresh ground and like even just in a casual way of like going to like, family get-togethers or friends of friends like oh what have you seen lately and the you know they they're specifically asking like in theaters and new movies or on streaming they're not necessarily like well i was uh having a little silent movie marathon the other day and i watched this film (laughs) don juan from 1926 like they don't care um so there's not as much of a of a place to talk about some of these movies that um you see through the year and uh are really great and they're new to you but they're not new overall so it's kind of a way just to make an excuse for us to to do that. Um, it also is very important for me to tie in directly to the YouTube channel. I'm all about that brand consistency. So, you know, uh, maximize that social engagement, like subscribe, share, comment, tell three friends to do the same and have them tell three friends and we're in business. There you go. So, Yeah, I had to scramble because I don't normally keep track of that necessarily. So when you offer, when you suggested this, I was like, oh, okay. So I had to like go back through the annals of Letterboxd and figure out, okay, what have That's I actually seen for the first you time? You still and... technically take the record. So <clears throat> That's true. It's it's still written down. It's not like I was just like, just try to think about it. Remember if... from your brain. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't have Letterboxd, I don't know. I would have been, I would have had no idea. Well, the great thing is like, you could just lie and like, no one would know if you didn't have, like, because Letterboxd, people can double check. Like, if you say this is a first time watch, they can look at your records and see if that's true. But if you didn't, you could just say, yeah, I watched this for the first time. And how's anyone else going to know any better? I guess. Yeah. You would have to live with being a liar, but that's between you and God. And that's, you know, that's a different (laughs) story. Well, I made it. I did make a top 10 list. Um, And your top 10 list is on your video. Yeah. So we'll leave it there and we'll see Mm. how it goes. But I'll okay. talk about picks from it. And so that'll be fun. And and tease. stuff that I yeah, and also there's things that I alluded to in that video that I didn't really go extrapolate on because it's a nature of our show, little moments. So now I get to blow these things up and talk about them in greater detail. So that's fun. Perfect. All right. Well, let's start things off with your first one. All right. My first one, which was a cheat, because it's not 
I mean, this specifically is a movie, but my first pick comes from Buster Keaton's 1920 short film, One Week, which, no, I didn't just have one solitary Keaton short in my top 10. I had all of them taking up one slot, <laughs> um, which is cheating, but also it was it would have been very silly to leave those off the list because they were like some of the best film watching I had all year. And the fact that I watched all of them meant it was very easy to just be like, right, that's one entry, uh, slot them all together. And One Week is the first Keaton short film that he directed. He'd starred in a couple others, uh, including being apprenticed up by Fatty Arbuckle and working with him. And he also shot another short film before this, but he was unsatisfied with it as a debut. So he didn't end up releasing that one until later when he had like a gap in his schedule. Um, which side note, he's way too harsh on because I believe that short was, uh, I think it's called The High Sign. Also really good and perfectly quality silent comedy, but One Week is better. It's actually one of his best silent shorts, so um, great way to debut. And I actually really appreciate the chutzpah of like, this isn't a good enough debut. I'll make a better one and that'll be my first one. <laughs> um, the premise involves this uh, newlywed couple who are trying to build their dream house but the instructions for how to build it have been sabotaged by the film's villain the uh, rejected suitor of the woman Keaton is married so everything is built incorrectly and there's a lot of great comedy from that and then the repercussions of that but the moment I'm choosing isn't too directly related to that premise it's this brief moment where Keaton's wife is in the bathtub and she's uh, running soap across her body and she drops it the bar of soap and she sees it and starts to reach for it and then stops and then looks at the camera with this acknowledgement of she can't reach out and grab it without revealing her naked body to the to the lens and you see a hand come from behind the camera cover the lens like with its the palm of its hand but so you still <laughs> see the fingers and the barest uh outline of a background through the sort of um through between the fingers that holds for a couple seconds and then the hand lifts up and you see her in the tub scrubbing uh, I love this for a number of reasons. One, it's just, it's very funny and it's a really unexpected joke because it's the only time the movie does this. So it really does catch you off guard when it happens. Um, I also find there's something genuinely kind of erotic and sensual about it. And the fact specifically that it's not the hand goes over and there's a cut. It's very clearly like done all in one real frame, as it were, where the hand goes, and because you see the fingers, you can still see the background. It doesn't just cut to black and then cut back. That makes it so much more, like, dirty and inappropriate because it's like, oh, she actually <laughs> did have to reach out. It's real. Movies are real. Um, so that's great. And I also, finally, the reason I like this, and it's kind of emblematic of the Keaton shorts as a whole, even though this joke is fairly specific and there's not too much like this exactly, one of the things that I think was really illuminating going through these shorts is it's kind of easy to think of them as like, oh, this is what you watch after you've gone through the features. Then you watch the short films and see how we got there. And there's a part of it to that's part of the appeal, but he's really fully formed already. So it's not like he necessarily is figuring things out as he goes. He already knows how to make a movie and his instincts are already really assured. Um, but also there's types of jokes that he does in these shorts that he does not do in his features. There's a lot more absurdist visual gags that he didn't really carry over into feature films because in his mind, 
when you have a feature runtime and you have more of a dependency on like plot and story, you can't break the reality as much or the film, the story will fall apart. And this isn't, a lot of those gags are more visual stuff. Like there's uh, there's this whole running bit in The Goat, which is maybe my favorite of any of these shorts where um, they keep with the elevator where they have like the needle that indicates which floor it's on. They'll stop the needle somewhere and that'll actually physically affect where the elevator itself is, even though the needle is just supposed to be like representing that. Um, like they put like a at one point Keaton takes a nail and hammers it in and it stops the um, the needle and then the rest of the elevator won't move either, which is wonderful. <laughs> Usually the absurdist gags are more stuff like that. But this is also in its own way an absurdist gag that does break the movie. It makes you aware that you're watching something that's fake. Not only does she address the camera, but we have the cameraman, too. So it's not like it's not strictly that she's addressing us. She's addressing the way films are made in the first place. And that's not the kind of Joe Keaton is going to do in his feature films. So to watch his short films, you get to not only the um, sort of beginning versions of the elaborate physical gags and uh, stone face comedy that he will do in his features, you also get a type of humor that is only found in the shorts, which makes them really essential viewing. So that's my moment from one week. Well, it makes you realize that like what Keaton's goal with these movies is, and that's simply to get a laugh, however he's going to get it. And in this case, this just happened to be the best way to get a laugh from that scene. Mm -hmm. And he did it. And I like how you compared it to the idea that he wouldn't do something like that in a feature. It kind of makes me think of like novels versus short stories if we're thinking of literature, right? Novels have to be a little bit more fleshed out. They have to focus on the big picture where short stories can focus on a specific thing that the author wants to get across, whether that's Poe going for a very specific mood in his short stories or something else this is kind of like that, right? He mm -hmm. just wants you to laugh and, and laugh consistently throughout this and he'll, he'll get those laughs. However, he needs to get them. Um, yeah. That's a really good point. Like it's that diluting to its essence where there is a story. And I actually think the story here is really sweet. I was expecting, I think the that the, uh, the relationship is like really sweet. Like yeah. the newlyweds, I was, I loved it. It it's, was, they're very like, yeah, sweet. I, I don't know a better adjective for that. Well, I found, I don't know about you, but like going into this, knowing the premise and seeing it established, I thought, okay, especially because it's like a, a rival for her affection that causes it. It's like, oh, it's going to be about how because of that sabotage, Keaton's incompetence is going to drive a rift between these two. And that's not what happens at all. It's really more about just this young couple trying their best to endure, yeah. you know, being a couple together and the hardships that come their way. And it's like, I'm actually for a movie that, yeah, is very much like jokes is the primary focus. You do end up getting swept up in them more than you maybe expect to. Yeah, they're in it together. And it's it's nice. It's very charming. Yeah. This is a wonderful also, little movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. It is, it's great. You see the first uh, that I'm aware of, at least iteration of the classic house falling bit where the window lands around Buster. Yeah. Um, which again, like, so again, you do have like the prototype gags as it were, but even just as its own uh, contained bit of comedy, like if you only ever saw this, you would still think Buster Keaton's a genius. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and a brilliant comedian. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned too, like the, the goals of like, um, making you laugh is the really the major and utmost concern because you can kind of see that by the last short 
start to shift and you see, okay, it makes sense that he would go to features now because the last film he makes, The Love Nest, is also funny, but the comedic streak is a lot darker and the story in general is a bit more involved in epic. And there's also a lot of the appeal is more just like the genuine tension of this character who is for various reasons found under the sort of uh, subordination of this uh, gruff ship captain who punishes his orderlings for failing him in harsh, brutal ways. And of course, Keaton's buffoonery invites potential punishment, but it's like genuinely really tense and really elaborate, even in its production. And it's like, it makes sense that after this, he starts making feature films because it feels like now he's ready for that or that's maybe not even ready is the right word, but like that's where his interests are now. Right. Not right. that his features aren't also hysterical. They are, but. Anyways. Oh yeah. There's lots, there's lots in those, but this one, it was just like consistently, it always was something different, right? The, every, and it even has the whole this day, no, this day though, this day, mm -hmm. but he's always finds new ways to, to make that physical comedy work. Even the scene, like the bathtub scene when she's, in the bathtub and he's trying to put the chimney on the roof so he decides the best way he's going to do that is to wear it like <laughs> like a dress <laughs> and then just walk to the hole that he made and that'll do it it's <laughs> so good yeah and the very end with the train just killed me just i was just uproariously laughing these movies are really fun honestly watching them for the longest time i was very like chaplin is my silent comedy guy after watching all the shorts i'm like I may need to rewatch the Keaton features because coming off those, I do think he's at the very least a better visual storyteller than Chaplin was. Yeah, I just don't think we need to have that dichotomy either. I think that we can just recognize that they're they're both geniuses of what they do. They're both and, great, as is Harold yeah. Lloyd. Yes, yes. Um, like Buster Keaton is just... He, like these guys, you you really, really hope that they don't just disappear into the annals of history, right? Because when you think about how long ago this was, mm -hmm. but how like absolutely brilliant they are. And like anybody could sit down with uh, with one week. And if they actually open themselves up to this, like they would they would absolutely see what we're talking about because it's, yeah. it's brilliant. It's truly great work from a truly great comedian. Well, it's funny you say that because my one of the I think the last public film going experience I had pre pandemic was in the intro class that I was TAing at the time. And they we screened Sherlock Jr. And being in a room full of first year undergraduate students, many of which are only taking film as an elective and will never take a film course again and hearing them laugh consistently and uproariously through a silent movie gave me hope for the future. Excellent. Then the pandemic hit and my hope dwindled gradually <laughs> and and uh, forcefully over the next several years. But that one moment was really nice. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, one week is wonderful. And yeah. uh, if you if you only see a couple Keaton shorts, it's definitely one of the ones to watch. But I feel like watching this one first is also a good invitation to like just watch them all. Um, they're really great. And this one's on YouTube, so. They all are, I think. It's easily, yeah, easily accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I caught them all on Criterion Channel, except for the Pale Face, which they didn't have. I don't know if it's because that's one of the more racist ones, um, but I don't think so, because it's not the most racist one, and they had those. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if it was an oversight or a rights issue or what, but uh, they were all on Criterion Channel for a bit, and it was some of the best three days I've had watching movies in uh, recent memory.
Excellent. Nice pick. Okay, well, I will move on to mine. So should I start my top 10 list until I get to my... Sure. Yeah, let's do However it that you way. want to do it. That sounds like it'd be All fun. Right. So for number 10, so a lot of these picks are like ones that I watch because of the podcast. So that's kind of cool. And number 10 was After Hours. So that's one of them. Nice. Uh, number nine, I'm not going to tell you because I'm going to leave that for a couple weeks from now. Oh. Um. Yeah. So... And number eight, oh, I guess we're going to start with number eight, which is, believe it or not, for the very first time this year, I watched Muppets Christmas Carol, which I had never seen before. That shocks me. Yeah. I saw you log this as a first time watch a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, that can't be right. He must have yeah. made a mistake. I mean, I've always known of its presence, and I know the imagery, but we were always, we always just watched Mickey's Christmas Carol at home. Mm. So we never really watched the Muppet one. So I decided, you know what? I'm just going to tick that off my list. And I really liked it. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so my moment is a moment where Ebenezer Scrooge has just been visited by, well, normally in most of the stories is Jacob Marley, but this time it's like Bob and Jacob Marley, <laughs> which, cause it's a Waldorf and Statler. So they got it. They can't break that team up. No. Um, so it was perfect. And so they had them as ghost visiting and it was kind of spooky. And so then they cut to Gonzo and Rizzo the rat, who are the narrators. Gonzo was actually playing uh, Charles Dickens as the narrator here, <laughs> which I think is awesome. <laughs> and so Rizzo the rat is like, whoa, that was kind of freaky. Should we be worried about the kids in the audience? And Gonzo just says, oh, it's fine. This is culture, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. That line really spoke to me. Like I just. It just speaks to like how clever the Muppets are and how self-aware they are. Um, and it speaks to like the fact that, you know what? Sometimes kids can be scared. We've talked about this on the podcast before, um, but I kind of like that they're using just the fact that this is a classic story that it's fine. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like the Grimm's fairy tales. They watered that down like crazy, but they're four children and they're old. So it's got to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I really, I just really like that line. I think it says, I think it says a lot, right? It says, well, it speaks to a very real, I think, double standard that the, the content itself is not objectionable if it comes from, you know, a classy source. Uh, And this is a fun sort of poking at that. And it's not making any grand statement with that, but it is a, I think, accurate observation that like, you know, if a kid is watching, say, an action movie with lots of killing, it's like, oh, that's rubbish. But if they're watching, I don't know, a Shakespeare play and lots of killing, it's like, well, that's, you know, that speaks to a higher purpose. I mean, it's the argument that, you know, being a kid who listened to heavy metal, not in the 1980s, but was interested enough in metal to look at like the arguments that was that were put against metal and, and rap music as well in the eighties with like the PMRC and stuff like that. And you would have defenses that would cite other music that lyrically had the same themes. And the dismissal was always, you can't seriously compare those songs, which were, you know, which were art to this drivel and filth, uh, which again is, is an argument more rooted in status than it is meaning. Yeah. And then, and usually it just takes time because now people look at that the music with kind of the same reverence right mm-hmm. like um like if you look at how people see nwa now as opposed to the outrage that it, they caused back then and now they're seen as kind of classic like 
they're in the rock and roll hall of song. fame exactly yeah, yeah um i also think there's there's kind of a funny element that the this is culture line is coming from like a muppet that's <laughs> that we're not even sure what it is some sort of a weird bow-nosed alien <laughs> it's like yeah this is culture too. and the muppets have kind of become culture now too so mm-hmm. I mean, you can definitely make that argument. I mean, this film is often, I think, heralded as, and I'm not an expert in adaptations of A Christmas Carol, but it's seen as one of, if not the best one. A lot of people love it. A lot of people. I think the 1951 film with Alistair Sim, I think is pretty well regarded. Uh, But other than that, it's like, this is the one that people, and part of it, the fact that it has the Muppets immediately will make it stand out, especially when a lot of the earlier ones are, from the 30s through to the 50s are all in black and white, which means it's rightfully or wrongfully easier for them to just all blur into one. This is in color and stars Kermit the Frog, so you're going to remember this one. <laughs> but also Michael Caine's really giving it socks. Like he very famously has talked about how he didn't play it like he was on stage with Muppets. He played it like he was with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Right. And it shows. <laughs> and yet he was also very excited to do a movie with the Muppets. Which I think is awesome. Like Michael Caine yeah. rules. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh it's a really wonderful adaptation. It also speaks to I think we talked about this when we talked about the Muppet movie, but the way like the Muppets are not characters per se, they're like the stars. Like right. that Gonzo's playing Charles Dickens. And they're then they don't make that they don't hide that. They're very clear that they are playing these roles of these characters, which is you know, mm-hmm. kind of a fourth wall thing too that the Muppets yeah. are so good at. I think it's in the great Muppet caper where uh, Fozzie and Kermit are like brothers and they look identical to the characters because the (laughs) characters they're playing are, but obviously they don't look anything alike. Um, And that's, you know, that's fun, but it also, I do think it also speaks to this way that like Muppets engage with the children audience where they simultaneously invite you to acknowledge that what you're seeing is make-believe which also makes the, the the more horrific elements of it um, justifiable in that sense of like, should we worry right. about the kids? Like, no, no, it's culture. Like it all, it's telling you that's a funny joke, but it's also like, this is just pretend it's okay. But at the same time, it maintains the sort of fantasy of it by the fact that yeah, the Muppets are actors, but the Muppets are real too. Like Kermit's playing a character. Gonza's playing a right. character. And that, that interplay is really, really fun. And the fact, yeah, and puppets is. in general are so natural for that because they're simultaneously so clearly like make believe and pretend, but also so expressive that you buy into it fully. Yeah. And Gonzo and Rizzo, especially like, I love them as the narrators and they'll just like pop up every once in a while. And, and they'll be like, okay, we're going to like, this is getting too much for us. We're going to leave the story for a while. (laughs) We'll come back at the end. (laughs) And then they come back. They said, we said we come back. Here we are. They're just great narrators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed my watch of this. It's a delightful little movie. For what it's worth, it's relatively new to me. Like, I don't think I'd seen it for the first time until either last year or the year before. Um, but somehow this just feels like something you would have seen. No, yeah, I I, I agree know. with you, but I never did. Well, I'm glad you got to it yeah. and you enjoyed it so much. And now anytime there's any debate about um, any sort of questionable content in in films or television or anything, I'll always think of this Gonzo line. It's, it's a great line. It is, and you know what? <laughs> I I respect that attitude. That was the attitude that basically 
a little bit older, but like once I got to high school, I could watch anything I wanted. That's right. It was like, hey, that's it's it's a European film, mom. I don't know what to tell you. That's just <laughs> how they do things over there. <laughs> it's fine. This is culture. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. nice pick. All righty. Um, should I jump to something a lot heavier? Yeah, more emotionally fraught. Uh, let's talk about a woman under the influence. John Cassavetti's brilliant film, which for I think for a long time in my personal assessment was my biggest like blind spot film. Not just because it's Cassavetti's most celebrated and famous film and probably well regarded film, but also it just seems specifically as someone who's really interested in seventies American filmmaking. Like, why haven't you seen this? This is embarrassing. Um, but I saw it this year, and uh, it's it's every bit as good as I'd been led to believe, and then some. It's fantastic. And the moment I'm choosing is, I think, gets to a lot of why it's so special. So to give some sense of synopsis, the film is about the marriage between Nick, who's played by Peter Falk, and Mabel, who's played by Jenna Rollins, Cassavetes' wife and muse and brilliant actress in so many of his films. And she suffers from, I shouldn't even necessarily know if I should say suffer, but she has various mental health problems. And they manifest largely in these weird behavioral tics where she'll she'll dance to no music. She will say things that are sort of nonsensical or erratic. She'll just make sounds. She behaves in ways that are off-putting and atypical to normal expected behaviors. And it ends up leading to, um, in the, around the middle of the film, she's sent away for uh, to a hospital for psychiatric care for six months. And then the film picks up again with her returning to her home for the first time in that six months and being reunited with her family and kids. And Nick, in one of a many blunderous decisions, decides to have a party for her for coming home to celebrate, which, yeah, is a terrible idea. And even though it starts out massively and then is called to just a few people, it's still a bad, misguided idea. Don't do that, Nick. But <laughs> what stands out is as she arrives, she's notably different in her behaviors than she was before. She's she's clearly nervous and uncomfortable, but she's also very cautious in every move she's making. She doesn't say much. She's clearly concerned about saying and doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And she feels very uh, sheltered and withholding. And Nick gets frustrated at one point and grabs her by the hand and takes her aside, goes up the staircase with her. And we spend, we have a two shot of them. And it's just kind of, it's a really tight framing. You only get like basically half their faces looking at each other in the dark of the staircase. And Nick starts talking to Mabel very intensely saying, I just want you to be yourself. Who cares what these people think? It's your house. You do what you want. And it's really intense and and a little bit violent the way he's kind of grabbing and yanking her around to do this. And it expresses a lot about their relationship. The fact, for example, that he's like, I just want you to be yourself. Well, that's not entirely true because you helped send her away because she was behaving abnormally. And now she's come back and is behaving, trying to behave normally. And you don't like that because that's not the person that you love and you're frustrated with what she, and he even says like, you know, he says like, give me one bad, bad, like doing the noises she does, like just be yourself. And you see in that scene and the way they're behaving, it's so vividly clear, like they really are not good for each other that, you know, he, in addition to having this party, which is such a boneheaded idea, in addition to the way he sent her away now saying, Oh, I don't care about what people think. I want you to be yourself and how, unhelpful that is for 
what she's already dealt with and where she's gone because of his, in, in no small part, because of his choices. The other thing, though, that makes it so much more challenging as an audience is you also see why these two are together because there is a real sense of affection and love. And when he's saying, I just want you to be yourself, he's not doing it maliciously and he doesn't fully realize the contradiction of that. He he does believe it. He does love Mabel. It does hurt him to see her not be herself. But then he also isn't really equipped to deal with the consequences of it. Um, and you also see from Mabel's perspective why she would be attracted to Nick, that Nick is in this sense, supportive of her and loves her for who she is. And then yet at the same time, we'll try and, and, you know, uh, harangue her into behaving normally and doing so in ways that as we see both before this and after this are violent, both verbally and at times physically. And it's just such a heartbreaking moment as an audience, because you can see so vividly, yeah, these two shouldn't be together, but emotionally you really want them to be able to figure it out and work it out because there is love there and there is affection and Peter Falk and Jenna Rollins are so, so devastatingly vulnerable and, and raw and emotional here that you want them to make it out. Okay. Even though, you know, they probably won't and they probably shouldn't. Uh, it's a beautiful moment that encapsulates so much of what makes this movie special. So that's my pick. Nice. That's a good moment. I haven't seen this movie, but like from what you're describing it, it gets across the idea that, the relationship is dealt with as complex and murky, like um, like troubled relationships are, which means that they're not always all good and they're not always all bad. And sometimes people can't express what they want to express. And that kind of sounds like what he's doing here, right? Like he wants, it's almost like he's, he wants this opportunity to get across the idea that he is okay with the person that she is. And he wants her to know that and come but he's not doing that properly and mm -hmm. and he's putting her in a weird situation saying i want you to act the way that you act around these people but that does not necessarily what she wants right she's that puts her kind of on the spot and that can be really i can see how that could be really uncomfortable yeah and that she's essentially been punished for behaving in the ways that now he's saying no no that's who you are and that's who you should be um yeah and i also think it gets to like the complexity of actually, you know, dealing with mental health as both someone who, I mean, for one, it's perhaps erroneous to look at the film as like, she's got these mental health issues and he doesn't because he in his own way seems just as, um, I don't know, uh, uh, atypical in his behaviors. And as she is, it's just that his are more socially acceptable or more normal, like, I, you know, there's a scene, for example, like, he reveals himself to be, a, in many ways, a much less competent parent than Mabel is, but because Mabel's behavioral tics are these more abject and obvious sort of abnormal ways of acting, she gets isolated and picked on. Or even, like, there's scenes, for example, where he's, like, screaming at her or his kids, and it's like, well, no one would say that's good, but we wouldn't necessarily say a man yelling at his wife or kids is abnormal either. It's very normal, um, and especially in the context of, you know, 50 years ago, say. So, and again, I'm not saying that people are okay with the way he behaves towards her or his kids, but he's judged by different standards than she is. And obviously there's also just gendered expectations that play into that as well. Um, but I think there's something to how 
it's very easy to say and even to believe, oh, you support people with their health struggles and especially mental health. But actually doing that work is hard. Because, well, because there's no textbook for it. Well, no. I mean, there, there are probably textbooks for it, but there's no sure. like, like, you don't have a script written out for you. In no, that with that particular person with that particular situation, that's just not reality. Yeah. And people don't follow, you know, scripted behavior as much as, you know, you can try to uh, contextualize and, and pathologize behaviors. It's much more difficult to actually put that into practice. But even on the simple level of like, you know, oh, I support you and I'll be there for you. In general, it's easier to say that than to do it. But I think especially when it's with someone's mental health struggles, it's it's one thing to say, oh, I can deal with you or I can support you and, and be supportive when you're dealing with this issue. It's another thing to then that's your life and you have to do it, you know, more than once and it's recurring and frequent and ha having to maintain that. Um and I think the film gets at that really effectively and, and in a way that feels really honest where it's not. And it's very Cassavetes, that sort of raw fly on the wall observational style, where even though I think it's a very loaded film in terms of um, its social commentary on on the stigmatization of mental health and where that intersects with gender, it doesn't feel like it's a didactic lecture, one, just because it's so emotionally engaging, but two, because it's dealing with these complex intersections where, yeah, you can look at the film and be like, well, they shouldn't be together. And I don't think the film thinks they should be, but you also emotionally understand why that's so hard because there's that real sense of love. And again, like real people and real relationships, a lot of people's real lives are messy, are at times even problematic. And, you know, it's it's not so simple as to as to just say, well, this is, you know, objectively ethically how this person should act and behave Th those things are much more blurry in in a in a practical lived experience and this moment on the staircase is is that perfectly where you see nick genuinely trying but he's not really equipped for you know he, he's not really doing the right things but he is really trying and he is really motivated by a sweet place and yet that sweet place doesn't necessarily justify everything else um, and for having this play out in the context of like a, a sort of party and family get together, which I think for a lot of people are socially anxious scenarios in the first place as a dramatic conceit heightens it all the more. Um, yeah, it's brilliant stuff. Yeah. Well, even like, even if you're just talking about relationships, that's one of the things that movies, especially a movie from the seventies, that's not afraid to, to really get into it. Like they can zoom in on a relationship like this. Now, obviously, it's not real relationships, but they're going to be based off of real relationships that the filmmakers mm -hmm. can recognize. Um, but like us as just observational people, we can see a couple, we can see a couple we know quite well in our lives and be like, oh, they're great together, or they should not be together. But but then you always take a step back and you're like, I actually have no idea what their relationship is, sure. right? Even though, even if they're great friends of mine, I don't really know what they're like together because he, it's the intimate moments between two people that you really kind of, then you kind of see what they're like together and you don't get that in real life. You do get it in the movies though, which is, which is kind of cool. And so you can, you can analyze it a little bit more in moments like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and by the same token, like with real life friends, it can be hard to say like, 
you know, you can make your own judgments and have your own ideas, but it's really like at the end of the day, you're still an outsider looking in. And unless it's mm -hmm. a real cut and dry case where someone's a complete <laughs> scumbag, yeah, which makes it easier. But oftentimes it's not so cut and dry and you have people who will do, you know, really hurtful and cruel things to each other. And yet, you know, there is this context and it doesn't justify it. I'm not defending any, <laughs> you know, potentially uh, toxic relationships here, but it makes it there's there's an emotional challenge there that it's not as simple as just assessing like, well, this is toxic and I need to step away because like, again, like real life is rarely that simple or that clear because on the other hand i think someone could look at this and just say no nick's a bad husband and he's a bad father and mabel should just step away and take the kids with her and they might not even be wrong but i think the film one part of the brilliance of the film is it allows you to come to that conclusion but then it also allows you to see like why that is hard right you know um and it's also interesting That's... because it's cassavetti's wife playing that lead role and there's some interesting speculation of like to what degree is this reflecting aspects of the relationship and certainly part of it is also there's this conflated either like with Cassavetes it's all improvised it's not at all but they feel so raw and apparent that it feels like it's just spontaneous and at least going through the the interviews on the Criterion Blu-ray there were at least a couple comments that are saying or maybe it was in some of the essays included as well you know it's a mistake to look at the relationship as um you know, what Cassavetes was like with her and to see Mabel as like, that's closer to who John was than the Peter Falk character is to mm -hmm. who John was, which is interesting. Um, and it makes sense too that like, cause Cassavetes is one of the most famous like wife guys to ever live. Like he and Jenna Rollins were together for, I think his entire career until he passed and she was in a ton of his movies and he spoke so lovingly about her that he would make sense that you know, even in a love story like this, which is not really meant for you to root for the the these crazy kids, there is such an abundance of love at the core of it that's always so apparent. Well, good pick. I'll have to check this one out. It's real good. It's uh, it can be. It seems like it's a viewing that it's a film that can really like challenge people emotionally, and it's it's for what it is. It is on the long side. I think it's like two and a half hours or something i didn't feel like it dragged at all and actually like it's it kind of went by almost in a blur and it was only after the more i thought about it that it was like wow this really like, <laughs> like impacted me even more than i think i knew as i was as i was watching it um so i don't know go in on a day where you're nice. you're ready to handle some some sad okay <laughs> sounds good <laughs> Uh, all right, well, I'll move on with my list. So I hit Muppets at number eight. Uh, I put Akira Kurosawa's Dreams at number seven, which is kind of an interesting one because it's like, uh, you know, it's got separate stories. So, so some work better than others. So it's always mm -hmm. kind of weird trying to yeah, the anthology uh, rank dilemma. something like that. Yeah. Uh, so number six, I'm going with um, probably a movie you didn't expect, which is The Big Year from 2011. <laughs> which you have above After Hours <laughs> and Dreams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> again, I put this list together pretty quickly. It's not You have to explain what this really movie is because no one remembers this movie. That's exists. right. So uh, The Big Year stars the comedy trio of Owen Wilson, Jack Black, and Steve Martin. And the premise is that they are bird watchers who are 
spending a year trying to collect as many birds as they can. And they're, and it's kind of a rivalry between the three of them, although kind of Jack Black and Steve Martin are sort of teaming up through most of it. And, but Owen Wilson is kind of like the big bird celebrity, birder celebrity, and they're kind of competing against him to see if they can get the most in that year. So that's what the big year is about. And it's not as comedic as you might think if just looking at this cast, it's actually a little bit more subdued in the comedy and it ends up being a little bit more of a, you know, a heartfelt story more or less. And I am pretty sure it's based off of a true story. Like Jack Black is playing this guy that just has been saving money to take a year off of his job. And so that he can do this specifically. Um, and Steve Martin is, retired from his high pressure job and he's decided he's just going to take a year and this is a thing that people do like this is this is a this is a subculture so why did i pick this movie i think for that reason i kind of like the subculture aspect of that i always like movies where you learn something about like a hobby that that people get really into that you never really knew about um and this kind of does that and i think it's cool and I think the birds are awesome. So, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm a big, actually a big fan of birds. I've kind of, uh, I've gotten into them quite a bit. I've kind of made my own list of birds that I've, that I've seen and stuff. So <laughs> I like it quite a bit. Uh, and so my moment is plays to that idea of the subculture, because my moment is when January 1st hits, I think is the start date. The Anyway, the first day, that they're going to start collecting the birds for the year. Owen Wilson's got his list out and he says, okay, there we go. Black billed magpie. And he checks it off. That's the first bird on the list, which. Okay, <laughs> fine. He That's the first bird on his list. But then when you're looking at it, like from now, I'm not saying I'm in the birding hobby. I'm not like, I'm not, I know I'm very, very much on the periphery, but if you know anything about birds, that's funny because magpies are everywhere so like they are they are very ubiquitous birds they're all over the place <laughs> they're around all year long they don't shut up they're they're everywhere and so of course that's the first bird that he's gonna see of course it is the only th other one that would make more sense would be like a house sparrow right it's one of the most common possible birds um that there is and so i like that kind of little nod to the fact that you know, bird people will get this. That Yeah, the first bird on the list is going to be one of the most common birds that you ever see. And no matter where you are, I, at least in North America, like I I'm pretty sure magpies are pretty common most places. Um, so I kind of like that little nod to nod to the hobby. Um, yeah, so it kind of reminds me of, if you'll let me divulge a bit, about 12 years ago, I went to Mexico. My sister-in-law was getting married in Mexico. So we went to the Yucatan Peninsula. We got there. It was like an overnight flight. We got there pretty early at like six in the morning and we we're pretty zoned out. But we're like, OK, let's rest a little bit and then we'll go down and meet everybody at the pool. And we we start walking to the pool and I saw an iguana. And I got so excited. I was like, holy cow, there's an iguana. I'm like, Kimberly, get your camera out. So I'm going to go take it. Let's take a picture. We took a whole bunch of pictures and I like went up as close as I could to it, took a picture of me with it. <laughs> I was like, this is exciting. I, we've already seen an iguana. And then we like turned the corner and there was like a dozen more just kind of lined up on the sidewalk. And I'm like, 
oh, so this isn't really a big deal. <laughs> like this is this is this is a magpie, basically. This is like a gopher in Saskatchewan. These are these things are gonna be all over the place. So it always made remind me of that. But so that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you have to share that photo on Twitter if you can find it. I should, I should try to find it. Um I've not seen this movie. Uh I haven't thought of it since it first came out in theaters because this was the year that I started listening to like film a film review podcast. So while I didn't see everything by any stretch, I did have an eye on like most mainstream releases to some extent. And I don't think I have thought of it in that entire time since until I saw it <laughs> pop up four star review of that was on Letterboxd. I was like, yeah. whoa. Um, you might be the movie's biggest fan in the world. <laughs> Uh, but I think you make a good case for it. And certainly um, the specificity of that reference, because there's a, I, I kind of respect just the filmmakers willing to indulge in that kind of joke, knowing that a very small percent of the audience will get it, assuming they get like, if it does find a wide audience, most of that right. audience is not going to be familiar. Like, I don't, you could have told me just now that like, that the joke was, that's the rarest kind of bird and you never see those. And I would have been just as like, oh yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and you can imagine, like, I don't know, like, let's say it's like a sitcom episode of some show, say it's like Married with Children or something, and they're doing this version, like this kind of story for just the right. one episode. You can imagine a similar joke, but like the bird they're seeing is like a seagull or something. Like it's something so much more basic. Uh, the, the fact that it's um, still like a properly identified, you know, type i don't know what the the correct terminology would be to use here black-billed magpie right that that <laughs> classification where it's like most people won't know that and won't right. know what that means i don't know there's a real like good on you for taking the the sort of high road with your joke there yeah it's well i will say that birders probably do did watch this movie because they're like probably sure. this is the only movie about <laughs> It's never going to happen again. No. So I'm sure they've, that's a big swath of the audience. Um, the last time they made a movie about us, it was the closest thing was the birds. And that didn't help our cause. That's right. We got to enjoy this one while we can. Yeah. Now they got the boy and the heron and that's still kind of anti, anti-bird. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. It's like, uh, I like to think it's when, when Justice League came out and was tanking and like DC fans were like seven for the seven commit to see the movie seven times. So it turns a profit for each of the seven <laughs> members of the Justice League. It's that, oh, but boy. it's like Birdwatch who's doing it for uh, the big year. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. I think it's a nice little, it's a softer comedy. It's not like a, a uproarious comedy, but it's, it's fun and you, I don't know. It's kind of nice. I liked it. Kimberly liked it too. Just like she liked it a lot more than she thought she was going to do too. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah. And there's like a scene where they go out to some like remote island just to see rare birds. And that's pretty cool. Mm. So when I went whale watching uh, when I was in Nova Scotia this summer, that was kind of on my mind too. Is like, let's see all the seabirds. Mm. And that was kind of fun. And there's actually somebody on my boat who was a bird watcher. So she was like telling me all the different species of seabirds out there. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Well, it does seem like any, any kind of like hardcore film person watching a movie about any niche subgenre or sub sort of interest sub hobby will find some interest and recognition of like, oh yeah, being in like in a niche. Now, obviously movies, like being like a movie fan is a lot more 
ubiquitous and certainly even if the the more intense rituals of like making your favorites lists or you know logging stuff on letterbox or keeping a film diary are maybe more idiosyncratic and specific they're still i would imagine maybe it's just because i'm in this niche so it doesn't seem weird to me but i would guess that seems still more there's not quite as much sort of um I don't know, interest in looking at this strange sub hobby as there is with something like bird watching, which is really elaborate, I think, or more extensive, yeah. but also more niche. Um, and that's intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. I always like when movies like make me think about a different hobby more. Um, like a good example is the documentary uh, Helvetica. And I was mm. like, people care this much about fonts. <laughs> oh, wow. They really care about fonts. And I found that absolutely intriguing. But even mm -hmm. a movie, another movie that I found this with was Up in the Air. Oh, yeah. Enough, because I was like, oh, there's like a people who frequently travel. They've kind of got their own little subculture about the yeah. way that they think, do things, too. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's a good one. And that's also like, especially because it's not even like vacation or yeah. seeing places. It's specifically like the rituals of like airports. Mm -hmm. is what it ends up being and then hotels and that's uh which gives it a more unique flavor than just like i don't know people who like to travel yeah um yeah, was interesting cool well so we i'll add it to the watch list and let us know if you're a bird fan out there <laughs> let us know if you've seen this movie or if you've ever heard of it yeah i'd like <laughs> to know you're gonna spike their like uh google search results for this movie by virtue of being on the show <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. You know, making the change you want to see in the world. That's right. Cool. Um, well, I'll once again take it to something a lot less fun. And I'm going to try to use my practice of saying the full title. So bear with me. Oh, no. Uh, my last pick comes from Jean Dillman, 23 Quai du Commerce, 1080 Brussels. I did the best <laughs> I could. Can you translate it now? Uh, Jean Dillman lives on this street i don't remember so this film which uh any sort of hardcore cinephile will likely know in 2022 was named by sight and sound for the first time ever as the new greatest film of all time uh citizen kane had been dominating the list for decades and then 2012 vertigo took the top spot so i think some of the rumblings into 2022 was like kane vertigo what's gonna happen this year and both got bumped down a slot and uh jean dillman took the top spot and I hadn't seen it uh, because, and I'd been on my radar for a long time, but it's a three hour and 20 minute movie about a woman doing domestic chores in her home. And that's not a glib description. That is what the movie is in part about. It spends a uh, lengthy amount of its runtime just fixating on the tasks of domestic chores, peeling potatoes, scrubbing a bathtub, uh, cooking dinner, scrubbing the dishes that's the movie and if you're someone who on and i think a lot of us are on some level views movies as like for entertainment this movie spits in the face of that it has no interest in entertaining you um or at least in entertaining in conventional ways and in fact Chantel ackerman has talked about how one of her ideas with this film was that there's a certain hierarchy of importance in traditional movies about what warrants being shown you think about like like that alfred hitchcock quote about you know i'm gonna misremember the exact quote but something about you know he doesn't make slice of life movies his movies are a slice of cake like it's about entertainment it's about pleasure 
and the sort of boring stuff that's elided and hidden and obscured. And Gene Delman does the opposite. And what's interesting is that parts of this premise do have a potentially sensationalist hook because this woman's not just doing these domestic chores. She's also, to make a little extra money, working as a sex worker. And every day she meets a client uh, and exchanges sex for money. And in a normal movie, that would be the focus. You know, that would be the scenes that get the most attention, the sort of both the the inherent uh, sort of perverse gaze of just seeing sex on screen in general, but also like the scandal of like, oh, this middle-class woman is secretly a sex worker. Oh, the drama of it. And the film presents those as an ellipsis. That's the stuff that happens off screen and in is implied and hinted at. So we can spend 10 minutes watching her scrub a bathtub. And it sounds like I'm making fun of the movie, but I'm really not. Um, but one of the things that's really remarkable about the film, in addition to its rigid adherence to observing routine and in this very clearly delineated structure of like day one of Jean's routine, day two and day three, and slowly see it gradually start to fall away, is that stylistically the film is extraordinarily restrained. Most of it is shot at flat, uh, medium to long shots at a at a totally flat angle with a static camera and usually directly hanging on its subject. So you'll have Jean say, you know, sitting at the kitchen table, peeling potatoes directly towards the camera, looking down as she peels, and the camera's just static held on her for a long time. And it starts to have this weird effect of this, that becomes part of the routine, not just her routine as a person, but that's the routine of the film and the structure it imposes of this very rigid and, and um, restrained style. But then as the movie goes, something happens. We don't see what, but after her second meeting with a client, which happens on day two, it's clear something happens and something's wrong. We don't see what it is, but her routine starts to break down. She starts to make mistakes. Uh, she uh, overcooks potatoes at one point. She keeps forgetting to turn lights off in rooms that previously she very like efficiently would finish a task, shut off the lights, leave. She keeps forgetting and having to go back and do this. Uh, at one point, she goes to sit at her favorite coffee shop and sit in, in her usual spot, and there's a woman sitting there, so she has to sit somewhere else. There's all these little things that are adding up to tell you something's wrong. And one detail I love is that the film style also subtly changes. We get a shot of Jean sitting down in her living room, which is not a location we've seen that much of to begin with, but it's also shot in medium close-up. And instead of hitting Jean directly on, is just from a slight angle, very slight. And what I love about this is in any other movie, you would not even think about what the filmmaking is doing in that kind of shot unless you're actively studying it. You would just be, you know, it, that would just be another shot, a very normal average shot. In this movie, she might as well have cut to an explosion. It's like, <laughs> that's not right. These are flat angles, long to medium shots that are held for 10 minutes why are we cutting to a medium close-up at a slight angle? And it's I, what I love about it is it shows, on a certain level, actually, what I'll say about it is I think it really challenges what our ideas of good filmmaking are. And especially if you're someone who's very online and if you're a younger person, it's very easy to think about good filmmaking as like crazy oneers, long takes, or very elaborate production design, or really meticulous and detailed blocking. And I'm not saying that's not good filmmaking, but it's a very 
showy type of good filmmaking. It's the kind of filmmaking that gets shown off on like Instagram reels or that video essays on YouTube are able to celebrate easily because they're, they're, it's something you can convey very quickly with the time uh, constraints of copyright use with clips on YouTube. Something like this though is a really good example of filmmaking in terms of how direction is guiding our attention and informing the story and how then those choices can affect us. Because yeah, in any other context, a shot like this would not be remarkable. But in this movie specifically, because of how restrained and how rigid and how consistent it's been in its style, this shot, this angle is significant to us. It communicates so much to us about something being wrong. And on an even more basic level, it just is startling to you as an audience. And when you can do that with what is a very routine shot type and, and cut cho cutting choice, that's masterful filmmaking. So that's my pick from uh, Jean Dielman. It makes you realize how conditioned we are by filmmakers, right? Like we're we're just dogs to their Pavlov. Yeah. <laughs> and this is this is a good like what you're describing, it seems like a good exercise in conditioning the audience specifically so that when you change things up, they'll notice. Um, and so that's really interesting. And I mean, other filmmakers do this at various extents, right? Like they, whether it's just establishing what the mood is so that they can break it later, um, establishing things so that they can build suspense from those things later, right? Like Hitchcock is really good at doing. And, and in this case, it's conditioning you to understand the mundanity, but understand her routine. So yeah, just kind of seeing, it almost seems like there is she's experimenting on how subtle she can make those changes for for you and the audience to see if you'll notice. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> a good speaks way to more look to at the it. speaks more to the foundational building of the first part of the movie, I would think. Yeah, and it's also I think to your point about us being conditioned. I think it also speaks to the types of conditioning that have emerged because of, in part, the idea of like movies are entertainment. You wanna. You want to hook an audience, you want to emotionally engage them, you want to excite them, and some of the things that come with that, a moving camera, uh, dramatic and dynamic camera angles, but also even just something as simple as like a close-up. The idea that that heightens emotional response, it identifies you as an audience, who you're meant to uh, connect to and root for and who's your hero. I mean, think about how many movies you've seen where you'll follow characters who, just based on their actions within what you've seen, you know, objectively, you should judge them as like either suspicious or a bad person or a bad guy, but they're the one that get the close up. You know, we all watch Psycho right. and when the when the car is sinking in the swamp and it stops and it cuts to Norman in close up grimacing because like, oh, God, am I going to get caught? We all feel that tension for him, even though he's covering up a murder, you know, because those those tools are so powerful. So when you think about like. We're so used to seeing films use them. And use them in ways that we might subconsciously register a close-up as being, okay, this is important, pay attention, or we have a more heightened response. We're not consciously aware that we're seeing that technique. So when you withhold it for so, so, so long, um, it can produce a different effect. And it speaks to just how thinking about filmmaking outside of that box, how much that opens up to you. You know, because you have to be willing to sacrifice uh, engaging an audience in a traditional way. That not only are you not going to entertain them because this film is not interested in entertaining you you have to be willing to sit with someone doing routine and routine that in a lot of ways is boring 
is unfulfilling. But also the fact that like, you can imagine a version of this movie where you see, you know, Jean doing these chores and we have a close up on her doing it. And we're meant to like, oh, we're connect with her. What does she must think about this? What she must feel? How would I feel in that scenario? What do I think of this? We don't get that. We're literally held away from her. And it does make for a viewing experience that is a lot more challenging than what we're used to. And certainly I don't doubt that they're, especially when this got the number one greatest film of all time, people who started watching it because of that. And we're like, what is this? <laughs> what, what was I lied to? Because it's not trying to entertain, but thinking outside of those boxes is actually really liberating uh, and introduces new possibilities. Hmm. Yeah, when you like... The idea of seeing somebody go through a routine isn't uncommon in movies, right? Like if you think of like David Fincher procedurals, but they're usually things that are outside of our realm of sure. regular life, whereas doing chores is something that we're like, we don't want to do this in a regular life. Why are we watching somebody do this? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I can get why it would be challenging. But I can also see the merit in in like what you're saying and how how those subtleties can be can be used to take you on a storytelling journey with as little possible story as possible. So I can see the intriguing part in that. Three and a half hours. Yeah, it's long. <laughs> that does seem long. So at what point would you say this happens? So your moment, how far into this three and a half hours is it? It's more than halfway. It's um I would say, yeah, it's it's entering into I could be misremembering. I haven't seen this since I saw it in theaters, but it's, you know, if each day of the film is an act, which I think it very much sets it itself up as this is, I believe, either beginnings of act one or sorry, beginnings of act three or end of act two. Um, so that's a lot of establishing routine. <laughs> it's a lot of establishing. Yeah. And I mean, there's. I will say, and this is, like, I was really lucky I could see this in a movie theater. I have no idea how I'd react to it in, you know, at home when it's so easy to be distracted watching. Like, be like, oh, movies. she's washing dishes. Oh, I got to wash my dishes. Sure. It's like, <laughs> it makes you feel bad. Like, I got a pile of sitting there. Um, but it is, I do find, I've heard a lot of people, even people who like this movie say, yeah, it is boring. And I didn't find it boring when I watched it. I did find that there was a certain... I don't know, hypnotic spell the movie weaved over me. It certainly wasn't, like, exciting, per se, but I was interested. Um, and maybe it's because I, w I went in very much, like, you know, fully prepared and, you know, fully invested in looking at this in the context of, like, not necessarily, like, oh, greatest movie of all time, let's see, because I was not expecting it to become my new favorite movie. Yeah. But seeing, like, okay, looking for why is it being held in that high regard? And even if I don't, have it in my own top even a hundred movies i can see why it produces that response because it is pretty singular and i think it's extraordinarily successful in what it sets out to do and i, I did find that even beyond like the obvious sort of big reasons why it would be important thinking about it as like a feminist movie and not just because it's like a woman directed and because it's the first woman directed film to top the sight and sound list but also how it is very much about gender roles and the gender division of labor even taking that out of the equation and just watching it as like and relating to it in my own way, you know, it was a really kind of uh, revelatory screening. Like I, I joked going to the theater, I tweeted something like listen to a bunch of thrash metal to get ready for Jean Delman because <laughs> whenever I'm going to anything, I listen to music 
and it's mostly metal. And I think I had a follow-up tweet about, you know, who else was trapped under ice, which was the name of a very famous Metallica song. Actually, not that famous, but a really good Metallica song. Jean Delman, but like metaphorically. And I watched the movie. I'm like, oh, it's kind of true. <laughs> um, but also it was like, it was interesting because I then watching the movie, in addition to it being so restrained visually, it is also in terms of its sound design. There's no score. The only music we hear is on the radio. And it's very briefly, it's in a very segmented, like this is the part of the day where we listen along to the radio. There's some dialogue, but not a lot. And most of it's very like just perfunctory. Um, you know, like there's a scene where like she's like at the post office or something. And it's like the little exchanges with the postman there that are just about fulfilling everyone's task. So a lot of it is like silent, save for these really minimal sound effects of like what it sounds like when you scrub a bathtub and it was like starting to make you reflect or at least me reflect on like, wow, I really do like fill my own time fulfilling not just domestic chores, but any kind of work at home with sound, with music, podcasts, videos, even just me talking aloud just to get ideas out there. And it was actually really challenging to be confronted with not just silence aesthetically and also because that's not how movies are supposed to sound, but then also like the questions like, why do you do that? Why are you so uncomfortable sitting in silence? What are you looking to avoid and why, what might it say then about Jean that she's not doing that? And like, it was really, it was genuinely really interesting and really um, thought provoking. Hmm. So for that reason, I didn't find it boring at all. But again, like it's, this is a movie that I think really demands the right circumstances. I assume this was the screening room that you saw it at. Yes, it was. Yeah. So that's, it's interesting. So was it, do you think the sight and sound poll kind of, brought it to their attention oh it it 100 percent because they had a bit of programming where they did a bunch of sight and sound movies okay like they pulled their um their audience base and was like this is the sight and sound list which of these would you be most interested in seeing and i don't think john dillman actually scored that highly but they're like well it's the number one film we should show it and also because no one of the theater in this area would do it um and honestly like it had a pretty good turnout when i went and people who were who were engaged with it and did react because there is like something shocking does happen in the movie. And when that thing happened and not just like uh, the medium shot, like something, (laughs) an action within (laughs) the film is shocking and people reacted, they reacted very strongly. So it it did work for that audience. I think if you, if you give yourself to it, if you can find the time and you can find the right environment, it is really rewarding, but obviously that's easier said than done. Yeah. But I'm glad I did. Yeah. That's good. I'm glad you had a good uh, experience with it. It's been on my Criterion Channel watch list for a long time. <laughs> but like you said, it's got to be the right time to watch it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you don't bother. So, yeah, well, good pick. Nice. I'm okay, glad we're well... not ending with it. <laughs> not the most fun thing to end with. <laughs> True. Um, okay, so well, where was I there? Number six. Okay, so my number five movie I put as a documentary. Actually, we don't really talk about documentaries very much. Um, so this one is actually came out last year or the year before, which is The Fire of Love, mm. which is actually a National Geographic documentary. Um, and it's about it's about two scientists who are married, a, a scientist couple who are volcanologists, they study volcanoes and they, 
they it kind of tracks them it's got their own like video footage of the volcanoes and they're using their own footage that they took and it kind of tracks their career and their marriage um as they and they're they're the kind of scientists that are out in the field constantly like they're always looking for looking for the volcanoes to film and looking for new ones and exploring the world basically through this drive um and in the movie the two the two main leads are the married couple. So you've got Katya and Maurice craft. That's their, that's their names craft. And they're an interesting pair because they're very, they're definitely both very adventurous uh, because they've, they live their life in search of volcanoes and getting as close as they can to film them. And some of the footage is like insane. Like you see how close they get to the lava flows and stuff. But there's one scene in particular that stands out to me, and it's Maurice with one of the other scientists that they're working with. They're at this lake, which is basically a sulfuric acid lake. Like it is just pure acid almost that's comes up with the with the volcano with the vents and stuff, thermal vents. And he gets this idea in his head that he wants to go boating out on this lake. <laughs> And so he's got like this rubber dinghy and they line it with something, right? So that it won't completely corrode through. Uh, But they figure out a way. They finally figure out a way to make it actually stay afloat in this lake. And they're like, yeah, we're going to go. We're going to go sailing on it. So they do. Um, Meanwhile, his wife is like a chemist. And she says, and she's like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Because this is sulfuric (laughs) acid. This is some strong stuff. Um, and I've used sulfuric acid. It's it's uh, nothing nothing to be taken lightly. It's pretty strong. And so, like, they go out into the middle of the lake, and they're going to take readings, but they can't even take readings because the metal cable that their device is strapped to has been burned away, so that their their reading <laughs> meters just drop to the bottom of the lake. And then they end up getting stuck out there because the winds aren't blowing them back. It's blowing them further out into the middle. And so it's just kind of a chaos. They eventually get back. But I like that moment because it kind of shows the, I don't know if reckless is the right word, but sort of the reckless nature of, of this scientist Maurice in particular, like they, a lot of the movie talks about uh, the comparison between the two and he's, he's a little bit more adventurous and she's, um, she kind of reins them in a little bit more, but, and this is a good indicator of that, but at the same time, she's still, she's mad about it, but she, she doesn't stop him. He still goes out and does it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the reckless nature is also, it's coming from a, a real place of their philosophy of life, which is basically like, just go and explore. And there is even one part where he's in an interview where he's kind of talking about how like making the movies and coming back and writing the papers and all is all just kind of stuff he's has to do so that he can go do what he really loves, which is just go be with these volcanoes. Um, And I will say, and this is not like, I'm not spoiling any part of the movie because they bring it up in the, in the documentary pretty early on as well is that, the tragedy here is that this couple will actually be killed by a volcano. And that is always kind of lingering in the back of your head. But when you see 
like how they're talking about it and how they're living their lives and how they're doing things like going out boating on a sulfuric lake, you realize that they've actually kind of accepted that that could happen and not in a way where they're just giving that, you know, lip service and saying that they're prepared to happen, but you're actually seeing that actually, no, they, if they are to be, if they're find themselves in a bad situation and one of these volcanoes kills them, I think they actually are accepting of that. And they're, they realize that living this life that they want to live um, is worth the risk of that happening. And you really get that sense with this documentary. I think that's, that's a real strength with it. Nice. Um, would you say that, cause I haven't seen this film. Would you say that in terms of that idea of uh, they've accepted the risks of this and that if they die doing this, that it's a very real possibility that it, for you as an audience member who doesn't live so dangerously, it makes that behavior make sense to you. I say in a sense it does because you like when they first start, when they're really young and they first start doing this work, like we're talking, they, they managed to get enough of a grant to like rent a car and it's basically them and like one other person just completely making it up and going out with like not nothing other than their car and like their camera equipment um, and just doing what they want to do. And they they basically have tra- blazed this trail for themselves. And there's something admirable in that. Like the fact mm-hmm. that they're, that they're truly living a life of like adventure, I guess. Right. And exploration. And uh, there is something admirable about that. Of course, a movie like this makes you think of Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man. And I think that's yeah. a good counterbalance to this. And whereas in that movie, I kind of see that guy as an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's also live like living in dangerous situations. And when that goes badly for him, you're kind of like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, what did you expect to happen? It, well, whereas, it seems like he was completely delusional about. Exactly. Yeah. I haven't seen that film either. I really should. And so this is a good point of comparison for that because this is, you truly really do believe that while they do take precautions, right? Like they, they know what they're doing, but they're also aware that these are, um, these can be very temperamental geological events that, you know, could take their life at any moment. And eventually it does Mm. with like a massive um, eruption that they just couldn't get out of the way of in time. And yeah, so I think it's, I think that these, these two are <laughs> much more understandable than, than the grizzly man guy. Well, I bring that up because like, I'm uh, something of a coward. I live my life safely <laughs> and uh, with maximum. Well, it's not like I'm going skydiving every weekend either. Well, I'm also terrified of dying in any way where people be like, Oh, what'd you expect guy? Come on. <laughs> and part like why i wouldn't skydive it's like you, you had to know you'd screw that up it's like oh yeah you got a point um so i, I i'm speaking somewhat in jest but also it is like a fascination of like seeing people who do live in a lot more openly dangerous ways and in a way where it's not like a self-destructive thing as it seems mm-hmm. to be in this case but nonetheless has that awareness i i would imagine that would be a barrier i think for a lot of audiences is just like okay but why would you do that like why would you you know live in that kind of way 
Um, and this moment, I think, at least the way you're describing it, sounds like it would be good for starting to indicate an answer to that. Um, yeah. It's also a great sales pitch for the movie because just hearing you describe that, it's like, ooh, <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that. That sounds good. It's a good movie. And the like, even just the raw footage is incredible. Yeah. Like just it, visually, this is quite, it's quite stunning. Yeah. I was at, this was actually recommended to me by, um, by regular guest, Michael. Oh, the nice. show. So, um, yeah, it was a good recommendation. Yeah. Number five on your list. Nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. And I'm not really a doc guy, but every once in a while, I'll, I'll usually watch kind of the more prominent ones that we hear about. So, well, and this seems like I, it's funny you mentioned, I, I believe Werner Herzog has also done a movie about this couple. Um, yes, yes. Yeah. I heard that too. And I actually, I only actually figured that out when I was kind of looking back on some research for this show. I didn't realize that he had also, I think it's because their footage is kind of like, I think it got released to for free use. I think mm. that must gotcha. have been the reason. Um, and how they compare, I have no idea. But this is kind of the one that people talk about more. Than yeah. Well, it's funny because I the main reason I bring that up is just because I was going to make the point of like this being a very unique documentary. And then like, well, technically Herzog's also profiled these people. But just more the this is such a very specific type of experience that it does stand out. Um, it's probably why it was like such a uh, major documentary when it was released is because it just, it, you know, in a crop of documentaries that typically you're going to have things dealing with major social issues or sort of uh, human interest type stories that maybe cross section with uh, broader society, social commentary. And to an extent you could argue this is kind of a human interest doc just because the people at the core of it are so specific and interesting, but yeah. it also does seem like a rather singular documentary. Like you wouldn't get this mixed up with too many others. Right. And along the way, you end up learning quite a bit about volcanoes, which is pretty cool. There you go. It's educational. Yeah, that's right. It's not too intense for the kids. This one's educational. That's right. Yeah. It's culture. Yeah. That's all that matters. <laughs> awesome. Sweet. Uh, well, I guess I should finish off my list. Hey. Yeah. We're not even in the yeah. top three. There's still so much greatness <laughs> no. to go. Well, like I said, there's uh, quite a bit that came up in the podcast, which is why I watched these. So that's like number four is The Warriors. Oh, Jordan talked about, which is, yeah, I really like that movie. I ended up liking it quite a bit. Very high. Um, uh, number three was Hustle and Flow, which is also brought up in the podcast in our That's Oscar episode. Um, number two is Safety Last, talking about classic um, silent comedies. So Harold Lloyd Safety Last, which I like quite a bit. And number one, this might be cheating, but I put After Sun because I had, even though it was last year's movie, oh, I yeah, see yeah. it till February, but. There we go. That, I think that is cheating, but I get why you yeah. did it. If not, you can drop <laughs> everything or move everything up and they'll put in, uh, I don't know, to deliver die in LA instead. Oh, nice. That yeah. Number 10. That's an Who awesome knows? movie. That was my number 11 from last year's list. Nice. So yeah. cool. All right. This was a fun and time. Where can they find your list, Dan? Well, on a little website called youtube.com. Uh, eyebrow cinemas top 10 best movies watched in 2023 um 
it was fun. And people have been also sharing their lists in the comments, which has been really interesting to read and really fun to see all the different things uh, people watched. And it's also kind of fun when you see someone have stuff that was also on your list just by coincidence. So that's nice. Yeah, that's cool. So nice. Awesome. Okay. Well, well, I was going to say, if you had liked Sid and Nancy, it could have been in both of our lists. How cool would that have been? Could have, yeah. Sadly, Sid and Nancy made your it worst of list, so <laughs> that won't be happening, but oh well. Say la vie. I look forward to uh, Jean Dielman making your worst of list for next year, or for this year, really. <laughs> That'll be exciting. Yeah, we'll see. Um. Okay. Well, I think we'll wrap her up there, so... Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm. If you if you are somebody who keeps track of your movies and knows some of the best movies you saw this year, or if you're just like think you do and or you just want to lie about it, whatever. Yeah. Again, no one will know. So let us know. Uh tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds. Um send us a message on Spotify or email us at cinema and seconds at gmail.com. And check out eyebrow cinema for yeah their list or dan's list and Mm -hmm. here we go awesome all right well i've been ian i'm daniel and we'll see you next time